0: what do you know about that man <laughs> that was pretty fun
1: <laughs> all right welcome to the Kentucky field podcast i'm your host chase winiger today i am not going to be here long though basically i'm going to turn it over to chad and our panel of experts from a recent show we did it was the kentucky wild live question and answer show And that's basically a show where we have a panel of experts. This one consisted of Michaela Rogers, who's an environmental scientist. Kate Slankard, who is an avian biologist alongside Chad Miles, who, you know, of course, is host of the Kentucky Field TV show. So they were, you know, our panel of experts and people in the audience were able to submit questions and have those questions answered by the panel of experts. And. If you don't already know what Kentucky Wild is, basically it's a program that supports the state's most vulnerable species and those species are typically the ones who are not hunted for, fished for, or trapped for. So, think songbirds, uh, raptors, salamanders, you know, anything that we do not hunt for, fish for, or trap for here in the state. That's kind of the, you know, the line of questioning that we were going for. Those are the questions we filled in. That's why we had the experts we did on the panel. So the audience did a good job. There was a lot of good questions that were asked. I thought there was a lot of good info that came out of it. Michaela and Kate did a great job answering the questions. So I just thought it would definitely be worthwhile to turn that into a podcast, you know, audio medium. I don't know if you're driving home right now or doing dishes or cooking or those are typically the things I do when I'm listening to a podcast. So this way you have a opportunity to get the same uh, information that they provided for the TV audience. So with no further ado, I'm just going to turn it over to them. Here we go.
2: Hello and welcome to Kentucky Field. I'm your host Chad Miles. Tonight we are here live at the Slado Wildlife Education Center to talk about a really cool topic, Kentucky Wild. This is our annual Kentucky Wild question and answer show. Joining me tonight to answer all of your questions, we have first up Michaela Rogers. And Michaela, this is your first time on the call-in show.
0: This is my first time.
2: You're actually, your title is environmental scientist. You study a lot of species here in the state of Kentucky. Mm-hmm. So we're excited to learn more about that tonight. I'm
0: excited to be here.
2: Next we have a person we've been here for quite a few times. We've got our leg propped up on this really cool <laughs> Kentucky wild box here. <laughs> uh, Kate Slankard, avian biologist. Kate, how you doing today? Doing okay. Good. Nice. And uh, we're also going to have a conservation educator, Jeff Roberts, join us with some wildlife species. So tonight, this is brought to us by Kentucky Wild. And you've probably heard of Kentucky Wild. You may not know exactly what it is. It's a very cool program that's been going on for a couple years here in Kentucky. And if you're an outdoors person, you're not participating in Kentucky Wild, you're missing out. We have nearly 7,000 outdoor people located around the country that are participating in Kentucky Wild. Tell me a little bit about Kentucky Wild.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So Kentucky Wild is a program that is a couple years old and it is a way for people to be able to really support the conservation of species that make up kind of our wildlife diversity in the state. So traditionally, you could only support species through buying a hunting and fishing license in the state. And while there's nothing wrong with that, there wasn't a way to directly support those species that aren't hunted, fished, or trapped. Um, So, Kentucky Wild is a member-based program. Individuals or businesses can purchase memberships, and that goes directly towards the conservation of a lot of our species like songbirds, bats, butterflies, all kinds of different things that we work on here at the department.
2: The vast majority of our biologists here at the the Department of Fish and Wildlife are working on species that are hunted or fished for, Mm -hmm. but we do have an entire division that do a lot of important work try to figure out what's going on with some of the other species and monitor their health. And that's, that, that's kind of some of the things that you guys work on. So that's what we're here to talk about today. If you don't hunt or fish for it or trap for it, but you want to learn more about all those species that make just being outdoors more enjoyable, tonight is your night. So uh, we've already got some questions coming in. First up, we have Kenny, and Kenny wants an update on the bo- bird mortality event. Okay. Tell me a little bit about the, if you don't live in an area where this is going on, tell me a little bit about the the bird mortality here in the state of Kentucky.
3: Yeah, so this year we had an unusual problem in the state. Um, This is something that occurred in a lot of um, eastern states um, in the U.S. and we had some unusual bird mortalities. It mostly affected American robins, common grackles, uh, blue jays, and uh, European starlings. And um, in Kentucky, it was not uh, something that happened evenly statewide, it mostly occurred in six counties. Uh, Those counties were Jefferson, Bullitt, Madison, Campbell, Kenton, and Boone. And um, to be honest with you, we don't know exactly what the problem is yet. It started up in May, it seems to be slowing down now, it peaked in June. Um, these birds were uh, being found either sick or dead, and a lot of them had um, vision problems or crusty eyes. And so we've collected a lot of carcasses. Uh, we've submitted them for testing at a, at a lab, and we're waiting final results on those. Um, but in the meantime, we have a reporting system online where we're collecting people's reports of dead birds. If you find one in your yard, uh, please do take a picture and report it. We're mostly looking for birds that um, have died for you know an unknown reason, not necessarily birds that have been hit by a car or might have hit the window, the usual types of ways mm-hmm. that, that birds die. But um, we are collecting those reports, and that's helping, helping us to learn more about the problem.
2: Now if a person finds a bird like this and they they take the picture, they have a way that they can upload or report that picture to us?
3: They do, and so uh, behind the scenes, we're there reviewing those. We may contact you about your report to see if we can collect the bird for testing. Um, So basically, we're in the midst of figuring out what exactly the problem is here with these birds.
2: I'm assuming that you don't want anyone to be touching and handling these birds.
3: You're absolutely right. So you can either take a picture, report it, and then just leave it alone, or if you have kids or pets or a reason that you feel like you need to move the bird, please put gloves on, um, pick up the bird, put it in a a Ziploc bag, and uh, put it in your household trash outside, of course, your outdoor trash can.
2: So we're still working on finding out the reason. It seems to be slowing down right now, and uh, it's it's confined to six counties so far that we know of.
3: Yeah, you're exactly right. And so since we're not sure if this is something that's related to a a germ or a communicable disease, we've asked folks in those six counties to take down their bird feeders um, so that we're encouraging the birds to social distance. Um, And so if you live in Jefferson, Bullitt, Madison, Boone, Kenton, or Campbell counties, please uh, do not feed birds for now until we think the problem is over. The rest of the state, we'd just like you to watch your bird feeders, watch your yards, Keep your bird feeders clean, clean them in bleach water once a week, and um, hopefully we'll see this problem slow down and stop soon.
2: I'm, I'm sure this isn't the first time we've ever seen something like this. It might, we may might have known what the issues were in the past, but these type of things happen just like, you know, it happens in other wildlife species uh, just the same, right?
3: It takes a while to figure it out. When you go to the doctor, you don't get a diagnosis the first day oftentimes, <laughs> so I mean, we're just in the process of, you know, figuring this thing out through the labs. So.
2: All right. All right. Uh, Rowan wants to know the status of white nose syndrome here in Kentucky. Now, you did a show with Kentucky Field. We went out and went into a cave. We We did. We learned a lot about white nose syndrome and what to do and not to do. But tell Mm -hmm. me a little bit about the status and remind people again about going in caves.
0: Right. Yeah. And on that show, we even were swabbing a bat for white nose syndrome in that cave. So Mm -hmm. for anyone that is not aware, white nose syndrome is a fungal disease that has been decimating North American bat populations primarily those that, of course, live in caves, because this is a cave-loving fungus that likes the cold. And it's something that was brought to the United States and it spread throughout North America. Um, And it's, you know, the bats didn't really have any kind of defense because it initially came over from somewhere in Europe, they think. And so unfortunately in Kentucky, white nose has really spread throughout the state. Um, It first arrived in 2011. So many of our bat species that live in caves have been exposed to it. It's particularly harmful to um, our myota species or our mouse-eared bats. And it's... And while it has spread to many of our bat species, um, one positive note is that, you know, we've kind of been monitoring these animals. We've really been monitoring these declines. And while it really has decimated a lot of these populations, we are seeing evidence of bats still being able to reproduce. So we did a long-term study or several year long study on Indiana bats capturing females in the summer that have been impacted by white nose syndrome. And we are seeing that they are able to reproduce despite being exposed to the fungus so really the hope with white nose syndrome now moving forward is that the bats that are left are going to be able to push through reproduce um, and you know continue to kind of ramp up those populations with some resistance
2: so for people who like to spend a lot of time outdoors and we highly encourage that um, getting into a cave and potentially spreading white-nose syndrome from cave to cave, is, is, is a potential very dangerous problem.
0: Yes, absolutely. So, we really recommend as much as possible stay out of caves. Many caves are actually closed to people going in. You know, uh, there'll be gates over them. If there's a sign that says that there's bats at that cave, definitely don't enter the cave. And, you know, if, if you have been in a cave, then make sure you clean off what you are wearing, that sort of thing, so we can avoid spreading this disease further.
2: All right. All right, great update. Next question, Rhonda wants to know what uh, what she can do about woodpeckers destroying their fence posts. Man, woodpeckers, they uh, <laughs> they can get on your house, your fence post. Um, how, how can you kinda in- discourage a woodpecker from doing that?
3: Sure, so woodpeckers are protected by federal law so you wouldn't wanna shoot them. But what you can do is try to scare them away, make them feel uncomfortable so that they um, stop fixating on the fence post. Um, The way I'd probably do that, they don't like loud noises or things that clatter in the wind. You might take one of those um, disposable aluminum pie pans and just tie it to a string, let it clatter in the wind on the fence posts that they're focused on. You might have to tie a few up if they're pecking on a few uh, fence posts and and that'll probably work. If not, maybe a plastic owl, you can buy those at your local farm supply store. Um, Those can work, you have to move them around though, so move it to different fence posts maybe once a week or so.
2: Interestingly enough, I have a tree in my front yard, and this tree I think is a magnolia tree. And a, a, about a year or two ago, I walk out in the wintertime, there's not a leaf on this tree, and man, there are holes. It looks like someone took a drill and drilled the exact same hole in lines all the way around the tree. And I remember thinking, this tree's done. It's never coming back. It's, it's, it's something is bored in there. I'm thinking it's an insect. Mm-hmm. I found out later on that's not an insect, is it? What, 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 what type of animal, if you have a tree that's got perfectly Lines of holes all the way around it. What is that?
3: It sounds like a yellow-bellied sapsucker and and we just have those in the winter time and
2: I've never seen that usually kill
3: the tree, but yeah, they do leave some holes there. That
2: tree is flourishing. (laughs) It's I've never seen it look so good. It's doing really 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 good right now, and I thought for sure that tree was done. and uh, it is it is back so it uh, I was pretty shocked at that but that's what uh, I had a biologist look at it and that's what they told me said no this is actually a woodpecker and I'm a woodpecker and I'm like how to do all that without me noticing it but it did Uh, Willie wants to know um, if a hummingbird will lay eggs in Kentucky
3: yeah we do have Ruby 30 hummingbirds that um, nest in Kentucky and they actually nest throughout the state Um, they're fairly common so yeah they do breed in Kentucky they just can be It can be difficult to find their nests because they're so tiny.
2: How small are are, are eggs for, it must be like a jelly bean, I'm guessing.
3: Oh, yeah, you're exactly right, like a jelly bean, yeah. Yeah,
2: it's got to be really, really small egg. How many do they lay in it typically?
3: I think about four.
2: Okay, okay. You start thinking about a bird so small that, you know, four eggs is quite a lot.
3: Impressive, yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) Bob says he has no cardinals around his house and he wants to know if there's any reason why.
3: It could be something like um, a habitat change. Uh, cardinals like to nest in things like uh, shrubs, you know, about eye level, and so if they took out some shrubs, maybe the cardinals would have moved on elsewhere. That okay. would be my guess, because cardinals are still doing pretty well in Kentucky, and so I would think it would be something that's local to his yard.
2: We, we sometimes say, oh yeah, they seem to be doing pretty well. We, we see, you know, we're seeing quite a few birds, or the reports are good. Tell me how you, how you would go about testing health of a bird like a cardinal. You do certain type of testing and sampling to kind of keep up with, with the numbers, overall numbers. Tell sure. me how you would go about doing that. Well,
3: when I say that cardinals are doing pretty well, um, I'm making that statement based off of statewide surveys like our breeding bird survey. And that's a auditory survey where people go out and they listen for birds and count them in the same places every year. And then we use those numbers to run some statistics on and look at which birds are um, increasing versus decreasing. Okay. But then also we have um, songbird banding stations where we'll go out and capture birds and actually look them over in our hand to look at their health and watch for diseases um, okay. and other problems that might be causing declines. So.
2: And now the way that you go about bats is a little different because you literally go in and you're very cautious, you, you're talking Tyvek suits mm-hmm. and walk in and you, you physically take account during the, during the hours where they're in their, in their caves, right?
0: Yeah, so we will go in the wintertime into different caves. We'll have kind of a rotating set, one set of caves, one winter, and then the next year we'll do a different set of caves to minimize disturbance. But we'll go in while they are clustered in these caves in the wintertime so we can get a good population count on some of these species that we're monitoring.
2: And you you do some tagging. I know you do some bat tagging as well. Mm -hmm. We talk about tagging. Tell me what a tag is.
0: Yeah. So. For tags on bats, really, we call them bands, and I have an example of of what those look like here. So, um, these are little silver bands, and they'll just kind of go on a bat's forearm. Okay. And uh, the back of the band is open, so you'll squeeze it around their forearm. It won't go, you know, through its wing or anything. It'll kind of just pinch over it so it can still move around.
2: And then that data is entered into a database where if anyone else finds that bat somewhere they know where it was tagged and probably mm-hmm. have some basic information on the bat age, and all that type of thing,
0: right? Right, and sometimes we will be out, we will put up mist nets in the summertime. So that's kind of how we mani- or monitor for bats in the summer, is we'll put up these big nets, they'll fly into the net, and then we can get the bat out, we can band it and put this unique number on it that's on the band and gather lots of data on that bat. And then sometimes we will have bats when we go in for those winter surveys that then we'll recover them. So we know kind of where they're spending the summer and winter time. Gotcha. Yeah.
2: Fantastic. Um, how are the monarch butterflies doing? Now, this is an amazing, amazing b- butterfly, whatever, whatever species of mm-hmm. butterfly is. But interestingly enough, one of the craziest things I've ever seen, and I don't know if you have an example of it today, but you actually can tag I a butterfly. I do have
0: an example of it. Uh,
2: to me, thinking about tagging <laughs> such a delicate little animal Uh, is unbelievable to me, but you guys actually tag butterflies. We do. Tell me a little bit about that.
0: Yep, so these tags are really tiny. They're actually a little sticker, and what we'll do is in the fall, actually starting At probably the end of this month and then going through September into the first part of October, we will go out and we will have butterfly nets and we will catch monarch butterflies. And these are all going to be the butterflies that are headed down to Mexico for their migration. So that's why we only tag during the fall is because they're coming through and they're headed to their uh, overwintering grounds in Mexico. And what we'll do is put one of these small stickers on their wing. And this has a unique code similar to the bat band. So we've got a unique code on here. Um, It's also got Monarch Watch, which is the uh, group that runs the Monarch tagging. It's got their information on there. And so if we have any recoveries that have come through Kentucky, we've tagged them and then are recovered in Mexico, then we'll get contacted about it. Does that ever happen? It does. Yeah. And, And very rarely so, but we've actually recently just had our first Monarch recovery.
2: And that was a that was a butterfly that was caught here in Kentucky that little sticker it put mm-hmm. on it that little delicate butterfly flew all the way to Mexico and was caught by someone in this survey, and called you and said, we got your butterfly? Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm, yep, so the the butterfly was tagged last October. We actually had a Kentucky Wild event where members could come out with us and tag the butterflies. This was at Perryville, Perryville Battlefield State Historic Site, and so that monarch butterfly was tagged there by one of our members, and then it made it all the way down to El Rosario Preserve, which is in Michoacan, Mexico. And so it is in this oyamel fir forest, these really kind of high elevation firs where the butterflies are all clustered together. And it was recovered, the tag was recovered um, by one of the people that are searching down there for these monarch tags.
2: It's, it's amazing, I can't believe with wind and rain and the, all the predators that may take advantage of a butterfly fluttering around that they, they can make it to mm-hmm. Mexico, it's amazing. Yeah,
0: and that's why this is such a rare occurrence. We've put out, Over 600 tags, so us and our other partners have have helped us do this every year. So we put out lots and lots of tags and this is our very first recovery. So just to give you an idea of how absolutely rare this event is and how excited we are about it. But a lot of other
2: states are also doing this as well. So recoveries are happening. It's just the ones coming from Kentucky, we we haven't had a whole lot of,
0: right. and I'm sure
2: there's millions of butterflies down there because a lot of the butterflies are headed to that, that direction. So catching are, one with yeah. the tag has got to be pretty hard. Yes. This is a question about hummingbirds. So this is from Kelly. She wants to know how many species of hummingbirds we have here in the state of Kentucky.
3: For the most part, we have um, the ruby-throated hummingbird, but on occasion we get some rufous hummingbirds, um, usually in fall, sometimes even into the winter, but they're very rare. So. The only one that we have nesting here is the ruby-throated hummingbird.
2: Okay, okay. And that, they, do they spend their entire year here or they they, they leave? No, they
3: some... migrate to Central America Central for the America, winter, okay. yeah.
2: That's what I thought, I say you don't see them in the wintertime. But...
3: Yeah, because we don't have flowers for them to feed on in the winter, so.
2: All right, the next question is from Jason. This is a snake question. Unfortunately, we're missing John McGregor, you know, he's been here for many years, he, he couldn't be with us tonight, so we are any uh, snake questions we get, we're going to try to answer them. We do not have a uh, snake biologist out here with us today, but we have Jeff, who is a conservation educator. And What do you have there?
4: Well, uh, this is one of our 32 species okay. that we have native to Kentucky, so we actually have a total of 30, uh, 32 species, pretty good snake diversity. Uh, We do have four venomous species, but uh, the other 28 are non-venomous, so really, the average Kentuckian's chances of encountering a venomous snake in the wild in Kentucky is really not that good. Mm -hmm. You're much more likely to encounter one of the uh, non-venomous species, especially a common one like what I have in my hand here. This is probably one that a lot of people recognize, and this is a rat snake. Uh, they're very common. Uh, they uh, occur statewide. Every single county has rat snakes. And they are one of the larger snakes that we have. Uh, they routinely reach lengths of over six feet long. Okay. But uh, obviously again, non-venomous and harmless, uh, especially if you leave it alone uh, and don't provoke it in the wild. Okay.
2: So, 32 different species of snakes, four venomous snakes. <clears throat> this snake here, you're saying it's got its, its range, is every county in the state of Kentucky? Mm-hmm, that's correct. Out of those 32, how many of them do, I know, because I know that our venomous snakes here in the state of Kentucky are kind of spread out. Very small populations in western Kentucky for a certain Mm -hmm. venomous snake. Yeah, exactly, and
4: and it really just kind of depends on the particular species. Uh, We do have a lot of common species that have a, a mostly statewide distribution, but it really comes down to habitat. And so it depends on what habitat that particular species likes. For example, a lot of people see a snake in the water and they're quick to, identified as a cottonmouth or a water moccasin, Mm -hmm. when in reality, uh, western cottonmouths prefer high-quality swamps, which you're mostly gonna find in the western part of the state, so Mm -hmm. we really don't have that particular species spread throughout the state. So a lot of it comes down to, The individual snake, uh, what their needs are and what their habitat needs are in particular. Uh, But we do have a good handful of of snake species that are found pretty much statewide. Uh, This is one that most people, even if they didn't know what species it was, at some point in time, if you spend any time outside of Kentucky, you're probably going to cross paths with a rat snake. Oh yeah,
2: <laughs> they're extremely common, they're, they, they yep. can be seen. And
4: great to have around. These uh, are uh, mostly eating rodents uh, and that's the, that's the thing that, uh, especially here at the Slato Center, what we always try to to get people's uh, take away about snakes to be is that, Snakes are very important, regardless of how comfortable or uncomfortable you may feel about snakes, they're very important, they have very important jobs to do, and uh, they help to prevent the overpopulation of a lot of species that we would consider to be pests and not want to be become overpopulated, uh, particularly rodents, and again, that's, you know, with a name like rat snake, mm-hmm. you know, uh, these snakes are eating mostly small mammals, a lot of rodents.
2: All right, well that's great, well appreciate you bringing that out. And, sure. Uh, now, we sometimes go to the State Fair and take some samples of some snakes. Are we planning on doing that this
4: year? Uh, yeah, that's the plan, and it, there's, it very well could be this exact snake I have in my hand here. Uh, regardless, though, yeah, if, you're, if you're visiting the State Fair, we encourage folks to drop by the Fish and Wildlife booth and see because we will have a snake there, and it, it may very well be this rat snake I have in my hand. All right, fantastic. Thanks for, thanks for sharing. You bet. All right, next question
2: is uh, from Ryan. This one, they want to know what snakes typically eat. Jeff, you want to answer that question?
4: What, what, I, we know what this one eats, but based on the well, name. Yeah, so uh, this one's pretty self-explanatory. It really, again, once again, uh, depends on the species. We've got, uh, with 32 total species, you know, we've got smaller species that you're gonna find in your backyards, and your garden, in your landscaping. Those might be decays brown snakes or garter snakes that are mostly eating bugs and small uh, invertebrates, slugs, things that you don't want in your garden to begin with. Mm-hmm. And then we also have a lot of larger snakes like this that are eating small mammals, um, birds and bird eggs on occasion. We've got uh, water snakes. We actually have a handful of water snakes, the most common being the the common water snake, Mm -hmm. uh, that are eating uh, things that you might find in aquatic ecosystems uh, like fish for the most part. So it really just depends on the individual species, uh, kind of where they live and what they might eat. We have uh, uh, the hognose snake, specializes and only eats frogs and toads in the wild. So uh, it really just kind of depends on the snake, but generally speaking, a lot of Kentucky snakes eat a lot of small mammals mm-hmm. and small rodents, which obviously is a good thing.
2: Yeah. That's fantastic. All right. The next question here is from John. John wants to know how he gets one of these Kentucky Wild shirts. You girls are uh, proudly displaying your Kentucky Wild t-shirt and uh, John wants to know how to get a Kentucky Wild t-shirt. So these shirts are actually, uh, there is a promo code. Tell me a little bit about the promo
0: code. So the promo code is part of this show tonight, so kind of uh, an exciting promo because we're doing the Kentucky Wild show tonight. It is. KY afield so okay. not Kentucky afield you'll just type in KY afield and that's what you type in to join um, when you're getting a Kentucky Wild membership so if you go to fw.ky.gov forward slash KY wild you can sign up for a membership and so tonight if you join at our $25 level which is our lowest level, level of membership where you normally don't get the Kentucky Wild t-shirt you can actually get that okay. with that promo code. I've, and
2: I've got a couple of these shirts and they're very soft and mail. I actually really like, I really like these shirts. So yep. if, you want to, if you want one of these shirts, it's really easy, you join uh, Kentucky Wild and you mm-hmm. can do that by going to the Department of Fish and Wildlife's website and put in KY Afield and purchase your $25 membership. And I guess they're going to mail you one of these shirts, I'm guessing. That's how mm-hmm. it works. All right. Fantastic. May have to join again because uh, they're very, <laughs> very, very soft shirts. <laughs> Next question is regarding bald eagle. Laura wants to know how are the bald eagles in Kentucky. Everybody wants to know about the bald eagles, and I, and I know you do a lot of work with bald eagles. How are they doing in Kentucky? And want to know where the best place to see one. So tell me a little bit about that.
3: They are doing just great. Um, the last time we did a statewide count for nests, we counted one hundred and eighty-seven nests statewide. That was in two thousand nineteen and um, the way we do the nest counts is by helicopter and we weren't able to do that survey due to COVID in 2020. So we took the opportunity that year to um, change up our monitoring program a little bit because it was getting tough to count all the nests, we had so many, so um, that's a good problem. But uh, we ended up dividing the state into three regions and so now we'll count one uh, rotating region each year. And so this year, we counted um, Central Kentucky, and we found 73 nests where we um, had found 53 the last time. So the birds continue to increase, which is just great. Um, The best place to go see bald eagles is probably at um, the Land Between the Lakes area in the winter time. Um, The state parks out there have eagle watch weekends that are a big event where everybody gets together and goes out on a big boat looking at eagles. It's a great time. Um, The boat's very comfortable, and you can see many, many eagles in one day. That happens in January and February every year, and if you look on the state parks website, um, the parks are like Lake Barkley State Resort Park and Kentucky Lake State Resort Park. They host those events every year. Um, So that would be how I'd recommend seeing them. I have a few eagle props here um, I can show. Uh, So bald eagles in Kentucky, Uh, They start nesting early. They're a big bird, it takes a long time to grow up, so they lay their eggs in January and February. You can see how big that egg is. Um, They lay two or three. The young learn to fly in um, May or June. We've got some eagle, this is a replica of an eagle talon, so you can see how big this bird is. Their talons open up wider than my hand. Great bird to see. If you haven't seen one in the wild yet, I would definitely recommend going to an Eagle Weekend.
2: Next question, Pat wants to know where hellbenders are located in Kentucky and he wants to know how to see one.
0: Well, I will get our hellbender model here since we brought it. Well, um, Thanks, it scared stiff. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, so this is the eastern hellbender. It is the largest species of salamander that we have in the state. Well, actually, it's the largest species that we have in the state and the largest in North America. Okay. So um, really, this species, is pretty widespread throughout Kentucky. Um, it lives in kind of larger rivers or, or streams that have, you know, kind of really high quality waters. Um, but the important thing that these guys are looking for is big slab rocks. So they want to live in a stream that has these large rocks in it, and they live under these rocks.
2: Okay, so that, yeah. that's got to make them pretty difficult to locate.
0: Absolutely, yeah. So. If you know, when we're we, we've actually started a project recently, or you know, within the last couple of years, where we're trying to learn more about the eastern hellbender, and so when we're going out and we're trying to monitor for these guys, we are getting on uh, goggles and you know wetsuits and everything, and we're we're getting in the water, and you have to kind of hold your breath and get down and look almost sideways underneath these rocks. Like I find myself having to really pull down on the rock and look under these huge rocks, and. And the other thing to think about is these guys look like rocks when, yeah. when oh, they're yeah. in the water. You know, you might just see its eye looking at you from way back under a rock, and you're also trying to use a flashlight while you're underwater. And so, you know, we're, we're looking under these rocks to try to find these and also to see, you know, if they have eggs, because the males of this species will guard the eggs in the fall um, until they hatch out. Okay. Yeah. So...
2: I know with a lot of the frogs and salamanders, it seems like when they, what, what's a group of eggs called? I mean, is it a
0: clutch? clutch? Usually, so
2: how many eggs are we talking here with a, with the? This
0: can be over a hundred. I think okay. one of the uh, nests that we actually collected, or we have. Other biologists with Purdue University that we're doing a project with, where we're actually collecting some of these eggs to be reared up and then returned when they're at the subadult level, so not quite as big as this guy, which can get you know over two feet long. Um, but when they're kind of this smaller adult, they're rearing those eggs up, and then we're going to put them out in lots of different streams. Um, but one of the clutches i think had over 150 eggs wow yeah. so i
2: have to think that these high quality streams where these things like to like to live we also have a lot of fish species mm-hmm. and i i've fished with a lizard lure they they tend to be pretty effective for catching catching fish so i'm thinking yeah. that a very small percentage of these eggs out of 150 probably make it to adulthood
0: right absolutely yeah so they they lay lots and lots of eggs i i think it's you know maybe just a few of those will make it to adulthood if not just one
2: and so we're doing something with purdue we're sending the eggs up there and they're literally raising them to you're saying some adults so that has to be a really high percentage that are making it to adulthood Then
0: yeah so this is i mean it's a fairly new project we have not actually released any of them back into in kentucky yet um but they are rearing them they have a high-tech lab there that they are taking them and they're keeping them for actually several years wow. and then the sub adults will come back here okay. so the idea is that you know you're right there's gonna be a lot a lot better chance that they're gonna make it to a larger size and then hopefully won't be predated on as easily once they're released so we'll up those uh, will be able to ra- raise those numbers of hellbenders that we have in those streams
2: how long do these live, and, and at what age do they become uh, sexually mature so they can have offspring?
0: So, these guys can live, I, th- I think the oldest, they can sometimes live up to 30 years. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that is more like in captivity, but um, yeah. that, that's some of the ones that uh, have, you know, in captivity have lived that long. Um, and I think it may be five years that they're reproductively viable. Okay,
2: okay. And uh, this, this particular one here, you're saying this is uh, medium-sized? Uh?
0: Yeah. I mean, this is, this is an exact replica of a hellbender, okay, okay. Um, but they can get over two feet long, okay. so they're, they're really big salamanders.
2: Really, really cool species. Yeah, Very they're cool pretty species. amazing. All right, next question here is about, about whippoorwills. Dan wants to know about whippoorwills. We get this question quite frequently and he wants to know, uh, he's not hearing as many as he used to and do we know why? I know in the past we've mentioned that we we did know there were a little bit of a decline. Any new updates on that?
3: Well, so we have a research project on whippoorwills. We're trying to answer that same question right now. Um, What we found so far with a statewide survey is that the birds are doing really well in large tracts of public forest and they seem to be declining on private lands and so There's probably a few different reasons for that. Um, We think habitat loss and degradation may be an issue um, on some of those smaller woodlots on private lands, like exotic species like bush honeysuckle and multiflora rose can take over the understory, and um, that probably degrades the habitat for whippoorwills. And then um, they they nest on the ground, so they might be susceptible to um, non-native predators like feral cats. Mm -hmm. And also, they are an aerial insectivore, and so we may need to consider uh, pesticides and other things in their um, decline. But we're still looking to answer these questions, and so.
2: So, whippoorwills, they obviously make a very unique sound. Yeah. Is, is that, uh, the reason that they're making that that sound, is that the males, the females, is it both? What, what What's the reason for the, sustained. When they start making that sound, it's like, okay, that's enough. You've done that now for four straight hours. They just keep on going, (laughs) don't they?
3: They're calling to defend their territory. Most birds um, maintain a territory, and so they're calling to let others of their species know that this is my territory. I'm going to nest here, and
2: so. Gotcha. Okay. So it's a yeah. it's a defense it's a defense sound then. Right?
3: Yeah. Yeah. Sort of. This is my house. Stay yeah. out. Yeah.
2: I'd say we still hear quite a bit. We just recently did a piece down on uh, an all night fishing shoot on Lake Cumberland, and. Uh, if you listen to the audio, you can hear them out in the distance. We, we heard them all night long. They, they, that is a they good place for
3: them, yeah.
2: <laughs> it's a really, cool, it's a really yeah. cool sound to hear. And uh, But you just wonder why they, why they continually do it all night, all night, all night. But yep. They do their thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next question is, Chris uh, wants to know, um, during the last ice storm, he wants to know if that hurt the bluebird population. Now, bluebirds are different than blue jays. Bluebirds... Um, have the, A lot of people put out the bluebird feeders or bluebird yep. nest boxes or whatever. Tell me a little bit about those.
3: Yeah, so bluebirds in the wintertime will um, sleep or roost communally in bluebird boxes. Like eight or 10 bluebirds will pack into one bluebird house um, to stay warm and sleep in the wintertime. And it's not uncommon during harsh winters for us to have some loss in bluebirds. They just aren't a very cold hardy bird and um, sometimes uh, they end up getting too cold at night and we lose some. This winter we did have a long cold snap. We had that ice storm and it did seem to be a bad winter for bluebirds. I got a lot of reports of people that found bluebird houses that had some um, individuals that had died in them and um, it does seem like the counts of people that monitor bluebird houses are down a bit this year. But this has happened before 2010. We had a really bad winter. It knocked back the bluebirds and birds did come back. Um, it took maybe a year or two, and then the numbers came back. The nice thing about being a bluebird is you can nest several times in one year, have a lot of young, and um, so hopefully we'll see next year or the year after our bluebird numbers rebound.
2: That's interesting, because I was gonna ask you the question. I have a bluebird box at our house, and uh, it's probably not the best location. It was there when we moved in, and we immediately saw bluebirds in it, so we are like, hey, leave it alone, right? Yeah. It's literally attached to the appear on the deck. So it's right there, real close to where we're coming in and out. Mm-hmm. Close enough that I can monitor it throughout the year. And I know that a bluebird, I don't know if it's the same one, is nested three times in there this year.
3: Oh, great. Is yeah. that
2: is that the same bird doing this over and over? Yes, this... that's
3: probably the same pair and they're just, um, they're having a good year. And so they've probably had a lot of young and, and this kind of thing will help our bluebird population bounce okay. right back. So. so
2: you're saying they can, three th- nesting three times is...
3: Common. I mean that's a good run, but it's not terribly uncommon. Yeah, so.
2: that's great. That's yeah. great. I, my my kids were asking me because they like watching the the from the window watching the bird and how it always does its same trick. It it comes in, lands, and looks around, looks around, makes sure everything's safe, runs in there, and <laughs> runs back out. Yeah. And uh, we we saw the little bluebirds, and uh, lo and behold, wasn't very long later, six eight weeks later, they're there were more, more bluebirds, so yeah, they asked yeah. me, they said, Dad, is there, are these the same birds? And I didn't have the answer. So there you go, kids. Could be the, could be the exact same uh, nesting pair.
3: Probably. They're just good at what they do.
2: That, that's great. All right, next question is from Tony. He said he's seen a few armadillos. And we get this question quite a bit. I've actually seen armadillos on the highways as well. Are they making their way north into Kentucky? Either one of you know much about armadillos.
0: We actually saw one when we were in West Kentucky two weeks ago, okay. over near Paducah. And so armadillos have been uh, becoming increasingly more common in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the current you know population numbers are, but, but really we are starting to see them kind of throughout the state. Okay. They're, they're kind of you know going to be a Kentucky species at this point.
2: Yeah, they're, yeah. they're, they're here, <laughs> probably here to stay, huh. Yeah. James w- wants to know what he can uh, do on his property to promote butterflies. To promote this is really interesting. And you actually brought some butterflies there too. I
0: did. <laughs> so I'll start with the first uh, question, what he can do on his property to mm-hmm. promote butterflies. And the best thing that he can do is plant wildflowers. So. He doesn't have to worry too much about any particular species. You know, a lot of people like to plant purple coneflowers, black-eyed Susans, things like blazing stars. Um, We have lots of kind of spring-blooming wildflowers too, like foxglove, beard's tongue, some of those white white flowers, some of the earlier ones like uh, pale purple coneflower. Um, And then, you know, kind of the main thing to focus on is finding something that blooms in spring, summer, and fall. And so having a nectar resource available for the butterflies in spring, summer, and fall that they can go to and, and get those nectar resources that they need for food. And so that's for the adult butterflies. Okay. And then if you're thinking about the larval butterflies, especially with the monarch butterfly like we were talking about earlier, planting milkweed is a big one. Okay. And so the the main three species of milkweed are your swamp milkweed, your common milkweed, and then your butterfly milkweed. And the great thing about milkweeds is, you know, the, the caterpillars need those as their food source. That's the only food source that the caterpillars can eat. But they also have these really nice blooms, either orange or pink or kind of purple, and the adult butterflies and even bees will be attracted to those as well.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, I can't tell you, I, I, I run into a lot of people who have pieces of property and they're managing their property and. They, you know, a lot of times they they, they want to ask about incre- increasing their habitat, and uh, I notice that they 're mowing a particular area, and I know they don 't like to mow and it 's it 's way off from the house and you know mowing looks good when it 's freshly mowed, but other than that it doesn 't look that great. Consider planting wildflowers because mm-hmm. now you don 't have to deal with all that, and it 's absolutely beautiful during certain times of the year. Um, what type of wildflower mix is there a place that you can go and get a good wildflower mix here for Kentucky that are that is good for butterflies
0: there is um, there I mean there's quite a few different places so you can check with your local extension office and they may have some places that you can go to um, we we often We'll go through Roundstone Seed, but there are many different seed companies in the okay. state that, that we can use as you know places that have seed mixes. Um, I would just try to go for somewhere that has you know local seed to Kentucky. Okay. Yeah.
2: And Roundstone is actually located here in Kentucky, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's a good place. So you look them up and give them a call, maybe, yeah. and find some some source of seed here for right. wildflower here here in the state of Kentucky. So yeah, and not only butterflies, it's going to help a lot of other species as well, is it not?
0: Yes, absolutely. So, you know, we have many, we have native bumblebees, we have solitary bees, so there's lots of different species that could really benefit from these nectar resources and and the bees as well with the pollen.
2: And they're just, they're so pretty. And, you know, mowing it, it just, you know, you keep mowing and mowing.
0: yeah, and you know, of course we all kind of initially think of that perfect lawn and, and you, know, you can have that, but if you can just spare a little bit of space or maybe just a strip that you don't mow for a little while, sometimes you don't even have to go out and plant seeds for you know, butterflies or anything. You can sometimes just let things grow up and just see kind of what is in your seed bed that's already in your lawn. Mm-hmm. So you may just stop mowing it for a little while and kind of see what you've already got.
2: It's also great for your small game as well. Yeah, yeah. And so and you your want to song see more birds, yeah, songbirds, butterflies, songbirds, yeah. all yeah. that stuff. You want to see more wildlife. Just don't mow mowing. everything.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> Take your shoes off, get your lemonade, sit on the porch, and don't mow an afternoon. And
0: if you can, even leave it you know, in the winter for cover as well, because yeah. it becomes fall, things die off, and, and everyone kind of wants to go out and, and weed their garden and pull out all of the things that you know they think to kind of make it nice and neat for winter. But if you can leave some of those dead plants and, and things for cover, um, some of those plants are actually where your chrysalis is for your next year's butterflies are going to be hiding. Okay. All
2: right. Tell me a little bit about what you guys are working on right now. I know that uh, you, it seems like we get phone calls from you every now and then, or we just catch up, and you're always working on a very cool project. I'm like, oh man, let me know next time you do that, because people want to know more about not only Kentucky Wild, but about some of our, well, maybe some of our species that aren't seen or hunted or fished for, you know, people just don't know that much about like uh, uh, like the Hellbender there. Tell me what type of programs you're working on that we haven't discussed tonight.
0: Yeah, so, you know, this is bat related, but the most recent project that we have been out doing field work for is working on um, banding Virginia big-eared bats, and okay. so, we Virginia big bats are an endangered bat species in Kentucky, and it's just one of those species that we're really trying to learn more about. And so I showed you those bands earlier, the silver ones, but one thing that we've been doing for this specific species is banding them with these colorful bands. Okay. And so we've got red, green, we actually have purple and blue bands as well that we put out on this bat. Um, and they live in these sandstone caves or, or sandstone outcrops in the summer, and so we've actually been catching bats, uh, using harp traps at some of these caves and putting these colorful bands on them. And then we're hoping to try to figure out what the connection is between some of our summer locations where we know where these species are and then winter locations as well. So if we go into the winter, like doing those counts we were talking about earlier and look in those caves, if we see these different colorful bands, we'll start knowing where they're spending the summer. Okay. And that's important because Virginia, Big bats, the females, they get together in these maternity colonies in the summer and that's where they rear their young. So it's important that we know you know that of course they are reproducing to try to increase the number of bats and then where these bats are having their young as well as putting some of these bands on the juvenile bats and then kind of trying to figure out where these populations are dispersing to.
2: Okay. Yeah. How about you Kate? What type of programs are you guys working on right now?
3: Well, one of the things I do this time of year that's uh, most fun is our songbird banding project, and I think you came out with us on a show for that, where we go out and catch songbirds, and we band them, the bands are very similar, but we put them on their legs, and we're uh, doing this repeatedly to look at the productivity and survival of songbirds. We're looking at um, before and after we went into a field and restored it with native vegetation and wildflowers, kind of similar to what we were just talking about, we want to know how much that boosts the, the productivity and, and survival of the birds. And so that's something fun. We do have a Kentucky Wild event coming up with that. So if you join, you will have a chance to possibly come out with us to do that. Um, we're also ramping up for our statewide barn owl inventory next year. The barn owl is a very rare species in Kentucky and we're counting them statewide. And so we'll be out um, next year looking for those. And if anybody has barn owls on their property, we sure would like to know about it um, because we're, we're studying those locations to find out why they're, why they're different from other locations that don't have barn owls. So,
2: okay. so you're talking about opportunities for Kentucky Wild members to potentially get out, outdoors and participate with some of the data gathering uh, mm-hmm. for some of your programs. And you, you've, you've mentioned that a few times as well. How, so if a person joins Kentucky Wild, they go on, they log in, they do it, soon and they do the KY field, they're going to get one of the t-shirts you're wearing. Mm -hmm. And then how do we communicate with them? Is there a newsletter? How do do they find out about these opportunities?
3: There is a newsletter and a Facebook page um, that is mostly how people
0: follow along with what we have going on.
2: Okay. So there's communication on some some unique cool opportunities? And- A lot of it
0: will be through the email that you sign up with when you join okay. Kentucky Wild. Okay. So then you'll get email updates. We'll do an annual report of the different things that the funding has gone to. So what what all the different projects are that the funding has contributed to. And then if there is an event going on, like the songbird banding or the you know monarch butterfly tagging or, or something else, then you'll get um, an email inviting you to sign up for that.
2: Okay, all right, very cool. It's a very cool program. Um, so I appreciate everything you guys are doing, and, and uh, if someone wants to get out there and participate in one of these events, just go sign up, uh, become a member of Kentucky Wild, and make sure you use an email address that you're gonna check routinely so you can stay in contact with some of the cool things that you guys are working on. Sean wants, wants to know, he says he has a cave on his property uh, that may have bats in it, and he wants to know what he should do.
0: A cave that may have bats in it, well he should definitely keep an eye out so if you know I mean there are thousands of caves in Kentucky um, and and we do track a certain number of them for endangered species we of course can't make it to all you know <laughs> 10 15,000 caves whatever the number is in the state um, but if he is seeing lots and lots of bats exiting that cave especially you know in the summertime if there are lots of bats there they're going to be coming out in the evening to um, go feed and, and catch insects at night so if he's seeing a lot of bats kind of at dusk coming out of that cave Cave, then we it's probably something we'd be interested in looking at and he can contact the department um, and, and kind of once he keeps an eye on that let us know
2: okay all right yeah and you guys do some cool things some of those caves I, don't you have a way that you can count how many bats come in and out on some of the big caves that get used a lot? Yeah. So like I've seen one, we were doing it something one time and there was a, literally a bat counter that was counting them coming and going.
0: Yeah, so we have some um, thermal cameras and also some night vision cameras, so we can set those up at cave entrances and we can, you know, capture this footage of these bats that are emerging at night, which is great because, of course, we can't be at the entrances of all of these caves all the time. <laughs> Come on,
2: surely you can do that?
0: <laughs> yeah, we're going out right
2: after this. Okay, you can, you, yeah. you can do that.
0: So, um, you know, we have some of these tools that that help us to catch that footage and then there's ways that you can get software to automatically count some of these bats, which is really useful. Oh, very cool. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. All right, the next question here is, I want to know when is the best time of year to see salamanders. Now, how many different species of salamanders do we have here in Kentucky, and what's the best way to go see them?
0: We have over 30 species okay. of salamanders. It may be something like 34. Um, really, the best time to go out and find salamanders is after it rains. Okay. So, really, if you know if it's thunderstorming, if, if it's really wet outside, um, you can kind of go driving around on different roadways or, or just kind of checking the areas near you when it's really kind of you know nice and wet after a rainfall, um, and they also might be kind of crossing the roads in, in, in spring as well when we get a lot of that rainfall and they're kind of moving into the areas where they're um, you know, headed to uh, during the spring. Um, so those are kind of the the best times to go out and look for them, and in the evenings as well. So they're usually out at night. I was going so to ask you that. So, so, daytime or night. Light. So you're talking about yeah. in the evenings
2: after a late rain in the in the mm-hmm. spring. That's a really good yeah, time. Yeah. So go
0: out. you know you can go and and kind of stay out till the early morning hours, and you might see them on a roadway or see frogs or something like that. And if you bring a fr- flashlight with you, you can go looking.
2: Okay. Next question is about what the guy is calling a cicada killer. Now, I've been seeing some of these, <laughs> and, and this is, if you don't know what you're looking at, these things can be a little scary. Um, they wants to, he said he's got a picture of what he believes that is, is a cicada killer killing a cicada. All right. Oh, wow. I don't know if we've got that picture or not, but he wants to know if we can tell him more about what a cicada killer is.
0: Absolutely. So. I have brought, um, hopefully we can see this, A this is a cicada killer down here, um, and this actually is a European hornet up here. But this cicada killer, um, you know, with all of the scare around the murder hornets and everything like that, we've gotten a few calls about, you know, just people wondering what these guys are because you see something big and, you you know, people are a little bit worried about it. But these guys, uh, the cicada killer is, is not going to harm you. It is a type of wasp that uh, it, the, the adult wasp doesn't actually eat cicadas, but it will kill a cicada. And what this wasp will do is it will drag that cicada, it'll paralyze it, it'll take it into its burrow that it's dug so this is a type of digging wasp it'll take the paralyzed cicada into its nest it'll lay eggs and then the larva of this wasp will then eat the cicada it's it's pretty brutal (laughs) because this is a paralyzed cicada that this wasp is then going to eat or that the larva of this wasp is going to eat and then those larvae will actually stay in the ground until the next year and then they'll come out wow
2: and this yeah these things are pretty harmless can they sting you
0: I don't know of anyone that's been stung by that. I mean, if you were bothering it, then it would, you yeah. know, it would try to. But it's not get going you, to defend its <laughs>
2: burrow or sting you if you yeah. just happen to be around.
0: You know, they are interested in paralyzing the cicadas. They really don't. As long as you leave them alone, then they'll leave you alone.
2: <laughs> and I tell you what, I, I'm seeing them um, quite frequently right now. Right. Um, and so with that, the
0: huge amount of cicadas that were out, I mean, these guys are probably going to be having a great <laughs> year, yeah. which I'm sure not everyone's going to be happy about.
2: Yeah, so I've seen them in, in, you know, in Jefferson Oldham County. I, I live in Oldham County. I've seen quite a few out in that, in that area. So mm-hmm. I'm guessing that's because the cicada hatch was in the northern counties of the state of Kentucky for the most part. We we didn't have a bunch of cicada hatches in the very south part of the state that much. Yeah, do.
0: they I mean they will use either you know so we had the periodical cicadas that were you know in absolute abundance you know a, a few weeks to a month ago. These will also feed or they'll paralyze the annual oh, okay. cicadas as well. So those okay. are just the ones that come out every single year. You know the normal green cicadas that you're you're okay. always going to see year after year. All
2: right, and above that you have uh, again what are the one of the ones. Above? So
0: I also brought some of these. European hornets. And the reason why I wanted to bring those in is because of, you know, kind of the scare around the uh, invasive, the Asian giant hornet that has somehow come over, possibly on a cargo ship or something like that. And, you know, there was that big scare last year when, you know, none of us were having a great year anyway, but these, this is one of the wasps that gets confused for the, you know, murder hornet Mm. Um, and the way that you can tell the difference between this and and what would be uh, the, the Asian giant hornet, those are going to be a lot bigger, which of course you can't really tell because I don't have one of those. Um, but what you're going to look for, and you probably aren't going to get close enough to these anyway, but they have kind of a pattern on the bottom of them that looks like dripping paint. So the the Asian giant hornet just has the striped pattern, so the okay. yellow and kind of dark stripes, but these are going to have these little dots, and it almost looks like, you know, where you painted a wall and there's some drips coming down it, so they kind of look like they've got that, you know, just dripping paint look to them where okay. they're not completely striped. Okay. If that All makes right. sense. So if you
2: see this the one on the bottom here, you see one of these, it's, it's, it's not a it's not a hornet, it's a cicada killer and it's, it's pretty harmless, right?
0: Yeah. Okay. And, and these at the top are also, you know, they're going to leave you alone as long as you leave them alone. These we've had, uh, they're naturalized, the European hornets, they've been here for a long time. So you'll see them, um, but you know, just as long as you keep your distance, then they're, they're not going to bother you either. Well,
2: I'll tell you what, I've learned a lot today. Uh, there, you know, It seems like you, you spend a lot of time outdoors, but there's so many things to see and learn. And that's why you biologists specialize, you have your certain things that you keep up with. And uh, But I've learned a lot today with having a different uh, panelist today, so I appreciate you coming out. And I'd say what, if you ever want to come out and see any of these species of animals that we have here in the state of Kentucky, or want to take a picture of something you see at your house and bring it in, come to the Salado Wildlife Education Center. It's a great place to come, bring kids. or. Just come as an adult, take a picture if you've got something. We have a lot of conservation educators that can get you an answer on what you've got. It's a fantastic way to spend a a Saturday or an afternoon. So come out and check us out. Well thanks again. I appreciate you coming out. Hey, Kentucky Field is actually going to be preempted the next two weeks. So we're going to be off air if you have your DVR set. Unfortunately, we're not going to be on. They're going to have their pledge drive but make sure you join us. We've got a lot of great television coming your way. We've been out fishing and hey, by the time you get back, some of our hunting seasons will be coming in. So we're looking forward to hitting the field. So thanks for joining us here at Kentucky Field and make sure you join join us here in three weeks for regular programming.